But this week, Clara is going to read from the Bible in both Cantonese and English. Good morning, Sunday Fire um, This morning's reading can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. If you have a church Bible, you may turn to page 970. I'm going to read in both Cantonese and English. 今日诵读的经文是取自马太福音第五章三十八至四十八节。若果大家手上有圣经的，可以一齐打开马太福音五章三十八至四十八节。你们听过有话说：以牙还牙，以眼还眼，以眼还眼。但是我告诉你们，不
In this section of Matthew's Gospel, we've been thinking for the last few weeks about how Jesus sort of offers us 3D glasses, a way of looking at the Old Testament law so that we can see the true dimensions of its demands on us. This is not like um, the still naff 3D technology of the current day. Uh, I feel like that's something that's come and gone, even though James Cameron seems to think it's going to happen any day now. Um, Jesus's uh, dimension shift, as it were, is radical, and it will change us. And this week, we finish this little section of the Sermon of the Mount, uh, looking at these two final explosions of what we might expect to be the moral call on the Christian. And the first thing that we're told by Jesus is that there must be no more retribution, but only grace. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. It's important for us to understand the context that he's, he's writing about. He's quoting um, an amalgam of some Old Testament law. Um, if you'd like to, please turn with me to page uh, 79. That'll help you just to see that what I'm saying is not um, nice ideas in my head, but actually in the Bible, uh, which really matters. Um, so page 79, um, Exodus chapter 21, starting at verse 22. This is part of God's law. Israel have just agreed to be God's covenant people. And so God gives them the code of how to live as God's people, as the nation of Israel. And he says, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, and so on. So if some people brawl, this is the picture, if some people brawl in the street and cause a woman to go into premature labour and the baby and the mother are graciously, miraculously fine, they are the, pers- the people that were involved are to be fined because some serious trauma has taken place. It's not okay that the brawls that go on in the street affect anybody, but especially some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And so they're fined for the trauma that they've inflicted. But you see, if there is serious injury, verse 23, you are to take life for life, tooth for tooth, and on and on. A like-for-like punishment is inflicted if any harm suffers either of the parties in view here. Let's turn to Leviticus 24. That's page 127. Leviticus 24, um, and we'll start at verse 13. Just a bit of context for you. Um, A couple of uh, men were fighting in the town. Uh, One of them, uh, his father was an Egyptian, and the, the, the man blasphemes. He says something against the name of the Lord. Um, and so they bring him to Moses, and the Lord says to Moses at verse 13, bring the one who has cursed outside the camp and have all who heard him blaspheme lay their hands on his head then have all the congregation stone him 
You shall also speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses God, then he will bear the responsibility for his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. All the congregations will certainly stone him. The stranger as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Now, in some translations, thankfully not ours, um, it splits up at verse 16 and then verse 17. It gives sort of a different category. But look at how the logic follows. If anyone takes the life of a human, he must be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution life for life. And then as you turn over the page, you can just skim and see a very similar phrase to what we heard before. Fracture for fracture, verse 20, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured another, so the other shall be injured. There's a grading scale, if you like, of criminal justice going on here. There's a scale that starts with God, then it goes to man, or mankind, then it goes to animal and property, and uh, and then just sort of your GBH, your ABH, sort of criminal harm. There is a grading scale. Now, these, these commands might feel a bit barbaric, a bit outdated to modern Western uh, nice people in Hartford like you and me. Uh, the idea of a death sentence is particularly controversial. But that whether or not the law is outdated is not what Jesus is dealing with here. We can't look at these things with modern 21st century Western eyes and apply our concerns or our possible concerns uh, to, to, and sort of read Jesus as doing what we think he should be doing, but rather seeing what he's actually doing. To help us to see that, first we've got to look at what it is that God says there in Leviticus 24. What is it that Moses is to say to the Israelites when punishing this man? Verse 15, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Uh, I think what I read was slightly different, wasn't it? And it said, he will bear the responsibility for his sins. He will bear the responsibility for his sin. God's Old Testament law was designed in part to show us the cost of sin, the cost of relational breakdown, the cost of dishonouring one another, and far worse, dishonouring the Lord, the one who is infinitely honourable and holy. The cost of being morally less than we should be, and that needs dealing with. This is all in view when God establishes this principle of one being responsible for their sin against God and against humanity. And what is the cost? Well, when dishonouring or hurting God or killing a person, the answer is death. This is the cost of sin. And this is what the law was designed to show. When we hurt one another... That's not nothing. When we hurt one another, there is a real effect that it has on us, on our relationship. It is not nothing. And this law shows us that there is a cost. Note how the same sentence, death, serves two very different crimes. This gives us something of the dimension of God's Value, his holiness. Now, okay, you could argue, well, people can't kill God. So sort of a death sentence for a death sentence doesn't really work in this context. But it's striking that God says, if you dishonor me, then the same crime as if you had killed a person 
is owed. And it gives us a glimpse of something of God's holiness, something of his glory. And it gives us a sense of something of the horror of sin. We confessed earlier that we have not loved God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. The death of a person is a close glimpse of what it means when we admit that that is what we have done to our Lord. Not that it is the same as killing a person, it is infinitely more, but that is how he he sought to show it in the Old Testament. This eye-for-eye law showed clearly the cost of sin on, on people, and that was, the, that was the function of that law in the Old Testament kingdom. But before we move on, we also need to look at just the, the fact that this was a good law. That might feel peculiar to us, but this was a good law. If we don't believe that this was a good law, then we might just think that Jesus was correcting an old, outdated, barbaric system. And then we'll miss what he's actually trying to say to us this morning. First, just hear what other, another nation, uh, writing their laws at the same sort of time, uh, came up with, without God's intervention. Uh, the nation of Babylon had something called Hammurabi's Code, which is a fun thing to say very late at night. Um, here are some verses. This is just a paraphrase, but you can Google Hammurabi's code, and you'll be able to find this somewhere on Google. Um, a summary of the law there for you. Um, if two higher class men brawl and one should die from his beating, the other shall pay the family 30 shekels of silver. If the one who dies is a commoner, then the other shall only pay 20 shekels. If he strikes an upper class pregnant woman and causes her to lose her baby, he will pay 10 shekels. If the woman shall die, they will kill his daughter. If the woman who loses her baby is a commoner, he shall pay five shekels. If the woman is another high-class man's slave, he shall pay two shekels. Um, You're not going to be tested on any of that. It just gives you a sense of a lot of fines for a lot of death. Um, And just to put the nail in the coffin, if anybody steals, they'll be put to death. Yeah. This is the great law of the day. You know, it's so hard to, to, to know what a revelation, what, a, what a, a transformative effect God's law actually has on society 4,000 or 3,500 years later. Because living in a, in, a, in a world that is so affected by it. But if you were, if you were a tourist traveling between Babylon and Israel, and all you'd ever known was... Well, if I hurt somebody in my family, I'll just have to pay them some money. Um, but if I steal anything from them, oh, I'm in trouble. Then you go to Israel and it's the other way around. Suddenly, the value of human life is exploded by a hundredfold. God flips the script on what the people around them did. They valued property over human life. They valued certain kinds of people against other kinds of people. The law of God was good, and this law in particular was good, because unlike the world around it, God values human life more than property. He values all human life. That is part of its goodness. 
Second and, and perhaps more importantly, however, is how the law dealt with the human heart. Who here, when hurt by someone in some way, doesn't want to get them back? If we're honest with ourselves, then we might have some good moments, you know, by God's grace. But when we're slighted, or when we're hurt, or when we're hit, or when we're taken advantage of, or when we're maligned and um, awful things happen to us, perhaps in some small way, perhaps in a much bigger one. Perhaps we even sort of hear a little voice in the back of the head that says, oh, this is, this is um, righteous justice. I'm a Christian, and so because I'm a Christian, I can only feel anger towards unrighteousness. And so when I'm slighted, my anger is actually an instance of God telling me that I've been done wrong. There may be glimpses of that. But more often than not, when we're hurt... We want to get them back. Augustine, uh, the bishop in the third century, wrote this of the old law. It was also prescribed in ancient times to check the flames of hatred and to restrain the savage and intemperate spirits. For who is as easily contented to replace revenge as he has received from injury? Do we not see men slightly wounded plotting murder, thirsting for blood, and scarcely finding in the evils of the enemy wherewith to be satisfied? Therefore, to this excessive and unjust revenge, the law, fixing a just measure, institutes the punishment of revenge. This is that on whoever inflicted the injury, such punishment hangs. Accordingly, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is not the fuel, but the limit for fury. What he's saying is, not, it's not that the law encouraged something that didn't exist, but it puts boundaries on what, what would know no end. This is what this law is doing. The law is good because it kept the heart of the victim from spinning into a violent rage, which far exceeded the original crime. And in our modern Western day, that violent rage probably doesn't look like somebody getting the last coffee at the end of service and then you plotting their murder. But it might look like somebody saying something that makes you feel slightly uncomfortable and then you can't speak to them for a month. And then... It's six months later, and you've not spoken to them, and suddenly there's a really big problem. Neither of you really know why, but what you do know is you cannot lose. Or someone cheats you down in Northwich uh, Centre out of some money for some reason. And not only do you then say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not going not to go back to them and give them my service, because that's perhaps prudent. Um, I'm also not just going to warn people uh, when they ask, not to go to such and such, but I'm actively going to try and destroy their reputation online as a way of getting back at them. This is what Jesus was speaking into, writing into. 
And he shows us a new dimension of the law. He shows us that, okay, the original function of the law under the kingdom was to show the cost of sin and to seek to rein in our inclination to to try and win that cost back by our own means. But now, under his kingdom reign, there is no more heart longing for punishment. Instead, there is only selfless grace towards those who don't deserve it. Turn back uh, to Matthew, page 970. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. It was like this. It was that you you should seek to uh, win back the cost, like for like. But now, do not even resist an evil person. And he gives five examples of this. Turn the cheek, give the cloak, walk some miles, give to the beggar, lend to the borrower. We're not to resort to violence. We're to give at great cost to ourselves. Our expensive coats, not just our cheap shirts. We're, We're to serve others and we're to do it without capitalizing on the opportunity. And we're not just to do this to people we get on with, but expressly to those we might be at odds with. Those we might otherwise be seeking retribution against. This is hard. And it's just going to get harder because next Jesus calls us not just to selfless generosity to our enemies, or to those that don't deserve it, but to love them. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. No hate, just love. We are told to love and to pray for our enemies and our persecutors. Now it's not exactly clear where this idea comes from. Because nowhere in the law does it explicitly tell the Jews to hate their enemies. Indeed, you remember the promise to Abraham? The promise to Abraham from God was that Israel would be a blessing to all nations. So for the law to turn around and say, oh, and by the way, you should hate every nation, would suggest that God's trying to make it extra hard for them to be a blessing, which is not the case. It's probably most likely to be an over-exaggeration of nations' national identity, this idea of, well, we're God's people. We've been chosen by God. We're Israel. We're God's people. We've been saved from slavery in Egypt. We're God's people. We live here. This is the land. We live here. This is us. We're God's people. And so we're better than everybody else. That seems likely to be what's going on. But Jesus says we can't be like that because God's children, his sons and daughters, are to love like God. Have a look there, verse 44 into verse 45. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. It's been softened a little bit. Um, So the word that there should be so that. It might feel like a little change. But verse 44 to 45, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be... Sons of your Father in heaven. The connection is, is like that. Loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is, is what it means to be sons, daughters of the Father in heaven. 
The logic of this paragraph is wonderful. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons or daughters. Because, uh, it's not there, sorry, in the text, verse 45, the beginning of the second sentence should start with the word because. It's a beautiful sort of three-part chain. Do this thing so that you might live up to your calling to be God's people because what God does is cause his son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you see the logic? He's saying that loving and praying for those who persecute you is characteristic of those who are the children of God. If you want to be a child of God, this is part of the picture. And why? Because God is gracious to people who don't deserve it. God is loving to the evil and to the unjust as he makes the sun rise and the rain fall. We can't really see it today. It might be more the latter is going to happen at some point. Um, The sun has risen on Hartford again this morning and on hundreds of villages and towns and cities and countries and continents across the world. It's not hundreds of continents, but just as it has for millions of days before. And in a, in a slightly similar sense, just as it has across trillions of planets and billions of other suns have risen on trillions of planets across the universe. Whether you or I or the many trillions of people to have ever lived have been good or evil. Expanding the picture just a little bit, just think about it like this. Think of the last time you sinned. God let you keep breathing the whole time you disobeyed him. God isn't just giving us a little bit of oxygen and air and, and, and light and you know, niceness right here under the church, but the rest of Hartford is a desolate wasteland. You know, we've, we've got our um, warm spaces initiative going up and down the country. God is not like that with grace. Come to this little place and you'll get some grace, but, but the rest of the world is a nuclear wasteland. That's not what it's like. God is unbelievably gracious to sinful people. We call it his common grace, his grace which is common to all people. Grace to all people that he lets us live, he lets us enjoy life, whether we're Christian or not, though we don't deserve it at all. That's why children of God are expected to love their enemies, because how could they be his children if they didn't? How can the Father love enemies and be gracious to them, unbelievably gracious to them, giving them life and then giving them everything that they need for life to be more than absolute hell, whether they know him or not? How can we be his children if we do any different? But as Augustine told us earlier, we only need to think someone has done us harm to want to get even. And when someone actually does hurt us, well, that pain can run deep and hard for a long time. The cost of sin is real. If you're anything like me, these things sound really, really hard to do. Jesus seems to be calling, calling us to an impossible task. And I think that's sort of the point he makes on purpose. Because 
as we look at the last couple of verses, the world doesn't know how to live this way. Look at verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? We've been called to a higher standard, and it's a standard that the world just doesn't know. It is a standard that doesn't come naturally to our um, Adam-corrupted, sin-corrupted hearts. And tax collectors um, in the New Testament is code for traitors in society. Jews who, when the Romans came a-knocking, they sold up and they sold out their friends and their family. At least that's what the culture thought of them, whether that was true or not. Well, Jesus says even society's traitors know how to love the people that they that love them. You know, the man caught in adultery is going to accept an invite to the pub from his mates. The MP caught in a scandal is going to delight to receive a birthday present from his son. The woman who has a tense relationship with one of her colleagues is going to be really glad when her husband buys her flowers. It is not radical to love people that love you. Worldly wisdom says be nice to the people that are nice to you. And similarly, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Pagans meaning anyone who wasn't a Jew. Perhaps it's fairly normal by worldly standards to like your own kind of people and to ignore the others. It sounds a bit like Jews were friendly uh, with Jews and Gentiles were friendly with Gentiles, but they'd ignore each other in the street. The worldly wisdom encourages some sort of polite, functional social segregation. But that is not on for citizens of God's kingdom. There is a higher standard. It is God's own standard. And we heard it at the end of the passage. It is perfection. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God isn't interested in the best the world can do. He's interested in the best he can do. And so, therefore, must his children be. God is completely different to the world. He doesn't follow half-baked trends. He, he sets the bar for justice. And so citizens of the kingdom must be perfectly just. Perfectly loving of enemies, just as he is. I said before that I think Jesus wants us to realise that this is beyond us. And I think it's helpful to know that Jesus wants us to realise that this is beyond us. Jesus isn't just sort of saying stuff completely blind to the nature of the human heart. He knows what we're like. He knows what we're capable of, both in the positive and in the negative. I don't know about you, I I think I could read the first half and almost delude myself into thinking I could pull it off. I've got a few coats I could give away. I uh, can come up with a framework of sort of quite how to uh, you know, treat the person on the street who's begging. You know, do I give them money? Do I give them a sandwich? I can work that out. I don't have to like what I'm doing or who I'm doing it to, but I could probably grudgingly, grumpily, be selfless, be generous. But to love the enemy, 
to genuinely love them, to want their good enough to pray for them. That's really hard. But as we realise how difficult it would be to live like sons and daughters of God, we begin to read the passage through the eyes of the Son of God. And we begin to realise that here is a picture of the gospel for us and a picture of the hope of, of how this can be real for us, how this, how this can be appropriated by us and be the behaviour, the change of heart that perhaps we long to see. We begin to realise that Jesus will not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps Jesus on the right cheek, Jesus will turn to him, the other one also. If anyone would sue Jesus and take his tunic, Jesus will let him have his cloak as well. If anyone forces Jesus to go one mile, he'll go with him too. And Jesus will give to those who ask and will not turn away from anyone who wants to borrow from him. Indeed, Jesus loves neighbour. He loves his enemies and he prays for those who persecute him because he is the son of God. Because he is constantly gracious like his father in heaven. He is perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. This passage is a microcosm of the gospel. This passage shows us how Jesus has treated us when we were his enemies. This passage shows us that where before God was saying the way of the kingdom is to show the cost of sin by destroying those who blaspheme my name, now the the Son of God himself can say, I will love my enemies. I will be gracious to them. And it's sort of obvious from the get-go. If, if Jesus' kingdom shows not the cost of sin but the grace of God, we have to wonder where the cost has gone. The implication is that the king deals with the cost. Um, 1 John 4, 9-10 say, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the heart of the gospel, that, that God loved those who did not deserve love. He was selflessly generous to those who deserved only punishment, only death, by sending his son into the world so that the cost of sin could be dealt with. Tim Keller talks about the subject of forgiveness in one of his latest books and says, um, he describes it helpfully as saying, forgiveness means that when you want to make someone suffer, instead you refuse to do it. You're absorbing the debt yourself. That's where the cost is. Jesus absorbed the debt of our sin so we could become sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters, you inherit righteousness through the Holy Spirit. You are made able to grow in your selfless generosity for those who don't deserve it. You are grown in your love for enemies as his spirit transforms you from an enemy into a beloved child. Jesus' blood purchased for you the right to no longer be an enemy and the capacity 
to live like a true son and daughter of the king. So what does it look like for us to be doing that now? It's striking that when Jesus began his Beatitudes, um, one of the last ones said that um, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. There's a phenomenal parallel here, I think, between being a peacemaker, a lover of enemies, and living like children of God. And, and, and this whole section of reshaping uh, our understanding of the law, well, the first one was do not murder. Do not let anger sit in your heart. And this last law transforms that understanding If loving enemies is defined by Jesus' love for us in coming to die on a cross, absorbing the debt of our sin, then that is what it must look like to love enemies too. Let me say that again. If loving enemies is defined by Jesus' love for us in coming to die on a cross, absorbing the debt of our sin, then that is what it must look like to love enemies too. And I think... We can take enemies to mean both those who have actively wronged us and those who stand at odds with the Lord. So what that means is that this love is not just due to be shown to people who have offended us, but those who we don't really know and who, who you know, are fairly harmless in, in our neighbourhoods and our societies. Well, actually, they sort of fall into this weird loophole where they're not an enemy, but they're not you know, part of the covenant people of God, so they just we don't worry about them. You know, you say to your neighbour, well, once you mortally offend me, then I'll start loving you. But before that, you're not my problem. No, I think, I think this means both those who have harmed us, those who have sinned against us, and those who are living out, out with of repentance before the Lord, whether they know that or not. So what does it look like? To love like this. Well, as I was thinking about this, a fairly superficial example um, came to the fore. So, um, you know, tell me what you think about this afterwards. Um, Some of you know that I've had some car trouble for the last couple of months, and and the car I've been told is beyond repair, and neither of the parties responsible, um, not me, um, but two other parties don't want to pay up. So I could take them to court if I wanted to, and to be honest, I can't really think of anything worse. Um, But perhaps this is silly, and You know, you can tell me afterwards. But what if, thinking about this framework of loving enemies, loving enemies as defined by Jesus' love for us, absorbing the debt of sin, what if that framework encouraged me to, instead of demanding my money back and getting angry over the phone and enlisting judges and bailiffs and using a lot of energy up, speaking to the guys and saying something like, I'd like my money, but I'm not going to chase you, because the difficulty of sorting this out, the the lack of reciprocity, if you like, um, in just dealing with the problem, has made me worry for your soul. And I care far more for your state before the Lord than I do about this car. Certainly, I, I want to care far more for your state before the Lord than I do about this car. I don't want you to face the Lord unprepared on the last day, so I want to show you his love by absorbing the debt you've incurred here in the same way that he has incurred my debt on the cross. Maybe they'd ignore me. Maybe they'd pay up. It really wouldn't matter. 
But if they listened, if they heard about Jesus' offer to them, well, that would be worth infinitely more than any car. What if you made a commitment to pray for the person at work or in your family who, who just rubs you up the wrong way? What if you committed to loving like Jesus loves the person or the people who have caused you more harm than you could possibly count and write up on an invoice. I think in a special challenge for us as St. John's Hartford, as we seek to contend against the false teaching in the church, is to do so in a way that doesn't make an enemy out of a confused sibling or justify hating someone in our hearts and so fail to be a son or daughter of the king as we seek to stand for the king's truth, his law, his word. Hating them in our hearts on the ground of biblical truth. We are to love our enemies and to pray I emphasize the pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that only God can grant, grant repentance, leading anyone to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil that has taken them captive to do his will. No amount of our sort of deluded claims to righteous rage will change hearts. The only things that changed our hearts was the love and grace and mercy of Christ. And finally, I just want to suggest something which pushes the boundaries of Jesus' teaching here, but I think is commensurate with what he's saying. If this is how we are to treat our enemies, or those who make enemies of us, how much more are we to love our fellow brothers and sisters in God's family? The letter to the Ephesians is all about the radical, wonderful, glorious, miraculous work of uniting alien people, people at odds with one another, people who hate each other, together. The heart of the gospel is is enemies being united. God with us and us with one another. As we celebrate Chinese New Year, we get to rejoice some of the fruit of that this morning. A body of people who have no business being together but for the wonderful work of Christ. Paul says, in the light of Jesus' work, bringing us near who were far away through the blood of Jesus. Consequently, we are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus alone as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This mystery is that although the gospel of the, the pagans, the Gentiles, Sorry, through the gospel, the Gentiles, the pagans, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in Christ Jesus. God's intent in this, verse 10 of chapter 3, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The very miracle of us being gathered here together as people with no business with one another, apart from the fact that we're united through Jesus' blood to the Father in peace, though we were enemies, though in many ways we still act like enemies, was that God would show them the majesty of his gospel, the uniting of enemies through grace and love. That is therefore how we are to treat those who are enemies outside and in our lives. But that should be characteristic of how we as God's people, as his children, as brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers, treat one another. Just take a brief moment to reflect on what has been said. Perhaps thank God for the way he has not treated you as an enemy and ask him to help you to love a particular person who you are finding it hard to. And then I will pray. Father, we are so thankful that in your grace and mercy to us, you treated us not as we deserved, but instead gave us grace that while we, we, while we were still enemies, you sent your son to die for us, that we could become friends, children adopted through the work of your blood. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, transform us more and more into people who lament the fact that we are not as loving as we should be and transform us more into people who love the way that you love. Those who, in worldly senses, it is impossible to love. And we ask that by your mercy, by your great wisdom and power, the the love that you effect in our hearts would would surprise and excite the world around us and bring many, many to see what you have done and to know who you are for them as well. For your glory alone. Amen.